Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. This is Unpacking the Racial Hierarchy in School Choices. Joined by a very exciting guest today. We have Dr. Chantal Haley, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Texas, who's really digging into her sociology background and how race and racism interact with schooling. Yeah, and I'm particularly excited about this because I feel like we have... A number of times on the podcast mentioned this Chase Billingham, Matthew Hunt research that really looked at how white parents think about race when it comes to choosing schools. And you know, they did this research where they showed white parents a bunch of different schools and changed the racial makeup of them, held other things steady, and basically found that, um, I think they write, the proportion of black students in a hypothetical school has a consistent and significant inverse association with the likelihood of white parents enrolling their children in that school. So you already know I'm in my feelings in this whole episode. (laughs) Yes. The research has shown for a while that the blacker a school gets, the less likely white parents want to send their kids there. But I think what's fascinating about Dr. Haley is that she's sort of really exploding that black-white binary because, you know, we think often think about school desegregation, school integration in terms of 1954 and Brown v. Board. And at that point, we had black schools and we had white schools. And that is not the country that we live in today. Right, exactly. And so I think we have to be very intentional about including all of these voices and perspectives in this conversation because integrating schools impacts all of us. Right. So in a country that has a significant Latinx population that has a growing AAPI population, we really have to think beyond just black and and white folks. And, And really so much of the research, as is the case across the board, is really focused on white parents. White folks are centered in the research. And I really appreciate that that Dr. Haley tries to push that. Yeah, and I'm thinking specifically about public schools, which is, you know, what we advocate for. Public school population is majority students of color, right? So how do we understand more about how they are experiencing these spaces, especially across different racial categories? Yeah. The only thing to to say before we jump into the conversation is just, you know, this is this is research about racial categories of people. And we kind of often speak in broad strokes about white parents do this and Latinx parents do this and AAPI parents do this and black parents do this. And and obviously it is worth mentioning that that is not all parents, not not to say that every single parent feels that way. But I think it's important for us to understand that there these are trends um, and the research shows this stuff for a reason. And so it's really important for us to interrogate our own feelings and decisions about how this is operating and have conversations with our closest neighbors and friends about decisions they're making as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's take a listen to Dr. Haley. I'm excited. I'm Dr. Chantal Haley. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. Specifically, my work focuses on the role of race and racism and how it shapes young people's lives. How'd you find yourself doing that work? Why do you care about that? Yeah, so my foray into this work really comes out of my own lived experiences. In particular, when I really begin to think about the role of race in educational space and place and how all these things really came together, really happened in my transition from middle school to high school. So Mm. up through middle school, I lived in a majority Black suburban community, and I was in the advanced classes, doing the work, having a great time. And it got to about eighth grade, and my mom said, you're not being challenged in your current school. And she said, I feel like you need a little bit more to advance your understanding and to really challenge you in your thinking and in your frameworks for life. And at that moment, I transitioned from, again, this majority Black suburban uh, public school to uh, a private all-girls school, literally the place that the Bushes went to school when they lived in Dallas, right? So this is your, like, majority white elite school. I had a boarding component with it. And what I discovered in that moment as I transitioned is that I was traversing what I call Dallas's race-based place divide every single day. Mm. So I was going from this majority white, very privileged, very elite school to my activities in Oak Cliff, which is Dallas's majority Black and Latino neighborhood, to home, which at this point we moved from this black suburb into a majority white kind of rural area. So every day I was moving from literally home in this neighborhood and community where we were one of probably 
10 black families that lived in the whole city to this majority white private school to Oak Cliff. And as I was moving across literally every day up and down the highway, what I discovered in my relationships with friends is that all of us were having very different experiences at schools. All of us were having very different experiences in the types of resources that we had available. And as a teenager, these were all my friends. I knew that there was nothing inherent about us with why we had differential access to resources. And so that really made me grapple with why cities look the way that they look, why Mm. educational resources are dispersed differently across space. And so that really is, is where I landed in trying to understand both why people choose the kinds of schools that they choose, why there are differential access to resources across these spaces, and what that means in terms of people's long-term outcomes and long-term experiences. So is this where, like, we can pause for a hug time? Because (laughs) that's a lot. That's a lot lot. for a young person to have to navigate. We have a similar mother in that um, in ninth grade, my mom saw I had straight AIDS and she was like, absolutely not. You're not, <laughs> you're not getting challenged. But in, in speaking to your research too, as a ninth grader, I was able to negotiate staying in my all black affirmative space. I will definitely say that experience made me a sociologist. And I also should add a Third component to my educational trajectory was this majority Black public middle school to a majority white, very elite private high school. And then I went to Howard, which is an HBCU, for college. Right. So that also is my foray with really trying to understand how, especially how young people navigate being in affirmative spaces. As you can see in my work, it definitely shows up in how I grapple with these questions. Yeah, thank yeah. you for putting yourself in into that work. That really helps. Can you th- talk a little bit about what that choice for high school was like for your parents, recognizing that the the tension of kind of no good options? I, I, am I choosing academics or am I choosing the more affirming space? Mm. Did your parents grapple with that? Yeah, I think I, I want to say first one thing. I don't think it's an either or right. when we're thinking about racially affirming spaces and academically challenging spaces. And it doesn't have to be an either or. But I think when we have to zero into the racial educational structure of an individual's local area, that's when it sometimes becomes an either or. But it doesn't have to be, right? Right. And I think that's really important with how I think about my my work and how I think about the school system in in general. That doesn't have to be so. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it has a lot to do with who governmental structures and school districts respond to in terms of their requests for resources and opportunities. It has a lot to do with the very intentional segregation of spaces that exist in in the United States, right? It has a lot to do with the legacy and contemporary racism in this. Uh, I think often we look at schools and we just say, this is just how it is. But I think especially now how I'm conceptualizing my work is really about race and racism, both in the structure of what the school systems look like and in how people are thinking about how they navigate that structure. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. But to your actual question, which was about my parents and how that choice happened. So my parents are from New Jersey. And I have a picture that's on my uh, Twitter. And it's a picture of my mom's mother, my grandmother, sitting at a table with another Black parent and the white superintendent of their local school district. And the re- what they were sitting at the table discussing was the integration of that local school district in New Jersey. So I think what's important, even for understanding my educational trajectory, is that my mom was a part of the first group to integrate her school in New Jersey in late 1960s, early 1970s, right? So Mm. she grew up in a very much so racially integrated school system by by court order, but right at that foray of her actually being one of the first group of people to experience her local district as a desegregated district. And so that also factored into her choice as she was looking at my educational trajectory and seeing that I had only been in Black school spaces. She wanted me to experience interacting with other kinds of people. And in in Dallas's 
again, racial spatial divide, those kinds of spaces very rarely exist. And so she was very intentional with saying, you've had this experience. You're very much so empowered in your Blackness. I had multiple spaces even outside of school that really empowered me as a Black woman. And so she wanted me to be able to experience something different and grapple with how to interact with other people and what that meant for both my own identity, what it meant for how I think about the world, and just given the structure of the school system, what it meant in terms of resources that could push me forward and challenge me in my thinking and in my understandings. Mm. Let's dive into your most recent research. This article is how I, I came across you. One of our leadership team members read it and, and was so moved by it and shared it around. And uh, racial preferences for schools, evidence from an experiment with white, black, Latinx, and Asian parents and students. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about, about that research, why you engaged in it, and, and what it taught you. Yeah, so this research really focuses on New York City. Um, I went to grad school in New York City, and New York City is known as the most racially diverse city in the United States, right? You go there because you have access to all these different racial groups and cultures. What I discovered when I got to New York City and was a grad student already interested in school choice was that in New York City, there is no such thing as a neighborhood high school. In New York City, instead, everyone engages in in high school choice. So that means when you get to eighth grade, they say, okay, now everything's open to you. You can go to any school in the district. You list which ones you want to go to, and then right. and then we'll assign you there. Exactly. The other thing I found out is that New York City actually has one of the most segregated school districts in the United States. Right. And I really wanted to understand why those two things coexisted, right? So often when policymakers look at school segregation, they tie it to the racial segregation of the city, right? Right. You can't fix school segregation until you fix housing segregation. Right. So then the logic goes, if you're assigned to your neighborhood school and we have racial segregation, then we're going to have school segregation. Right. Well, in New York City, that tie between racial segregation and neighborhood segregation is broken. Right. And educational advocates say, okay, well, if you break the tie between racial segregation and schools, then schools should desegregate, right? Provided school choice to liberate people from their segregated schools so they will naturally choose more integrated schools and it will yes. just happen by itself, right? Exactly. But in New York City, you don't see that, right? You're right. seeing school choice. In a place where you can also get on the subway and have public transportation and access right. a lot of different kinds of schools in the city. But yet you see this, the schools are super segregated. And so I really wanted to understand why. There's a lot of qualitative work that tries to understand the kinds of choices that white parents make. Like a ton right. of literature about white families moving into cities and how they're navigating school choice and New York City offered an opportunity to move beyond just looking at white families, but to really understand a more complex question of racial preferences in, again, the most one of the most diverse cities in the United States right. in a context in which everyone is engaging in school choice. So it, kind of the perfect spot to see how racial preferences are impacting everyone, because yes. you, you have this wide range of racial and ethnic groups in New York City, and you have everyone participating in school choice. So right. you kind of avoid the ways the data might be skewed if school choice was something only wealthy or otherwise privileged folks do. Exactly. And so through NYU, I had access to every family's applications to, to the high schools. And so using that data, I was able to look at the association between a number of different school characteristics and how families ranked their schools on their applications. And right. what I found was that once we account for the other things that people say matter when they're making school choices, things like safety or graduation rates or school poverty levels or metal detector presence, right? All these components that we know people say matter to them in their school choices. Right. But also the qualitative research has said that people sometimes use as a way to signal their racial preferences, right? So they say, I don't want to go to an unsafe school Signal, actually, what I actually mean is I don't want to go to a black school, but I, I know unsafe is the, is the better thing to say, right? right? So, like, we account for all of those things that might be associated with race. What I found is that race was still central in family school rankings. 
But in my line of research, we call it like observational studies, right? Right. But in observational studies, the, the big critique is you're not accounting for something. How do you know it's really racism? Yeah. How do you know Maybe it's really racism? Maybe you just racism. didn't realize that, right, they wanted the school with the flower bed instead of the— right. Yes. Exactly. So the way in which we do that is using experimental methods, right? To understand if I'm completely controlling the hypothetical schools that I'm giving to families and in that control of the schools, I intentionally make it so that the racial demographics of the schools don't at all associate with any of the other school characteristics that I'm giving you. Like, let's just create this idealized district where none of those things associate And you give families hypothetical school choices and you say, what do you prefer in these ideal in these ideal schools where none of these things are actually associated? That was the method, right? You you found a whole bunch of families who were engaging in school choice anyway. And you said, here are some hypothetical schools. They weren't real schools, but there was some like reasonableness to the schools that you created. But they were fictitious enough that you could then control the variables to say what is actually driving the choices that parents are making. Exactly, exactly. And I was really intentional. So I I talked to uh, eighth grade parents and students who are actually choosing their high schools in this experiment. And I did exactly what you what you said. The demographics and the characteristics that I gave them, I made it realistic, actually realistic to match up to New York City schools. Right. So I gave them hypothetical majority white. Uh, majority Latinx, majority Black, and then mixed schools. And by mixed, I mean it matches the demographics of the New York City high school population. And then uh, made sure that they didn't associate with anything else about the school. And I said, okay, now what do you think about this school? Right? Like your eighth grade counselor is giving you these random schools. How do you feel about them? Just give us your opinion. One one to seven, more or less likely to to choose this school. Right. Exactly. And what I found is that families were definitely expressing race-based preferences for schools. So race affected their willingness to go to schools. In particular, I found differences across racial groups and between parents and students. Can I just ask, ask something? Because I, I feel like I've, I've mentioned the Billingham Hunt work a number of times mm-hmm. on the podcast, which was sort of similar design, at least, was like, here's some fictitious schools. You hold everything else the same. And we find that, unsurprisingly, white parents want white schools. But I, what I love about your work is you sort of you have taken it both beyond just white and black, but then also looking at parents versus students, because we know that it, at certainly at the high school level, students have you know, between a little bit and maybe all of the say in what schools they, they go to. Can you talk a little bit about why both of those additions to the to the literature that's out there were important? Yeah. Let's think about the black-white binary. I think the, the reason why a lot of our research in particular focuses on white parents' preferences or beliefs about Black students is because historically that's what the school system looked like, right? We can think back to the 1960s and historically the schools were majority white or Black, right? Right. But that's not what our schools look like anymore. We have a large, exponentially growing population of Latinx students, an exponentially growing population of Asian students. And that especially is so in our major cities. And so I think that's why it was super important to move beyond black and white, because that's not what schools often look like now. And I think it's also important to not center whiteness in our research and to really grapple with the ways in which everyone is having an impact on what schools look like. So I think that's that was one of the reasons why I did that. The other reason was the reality of that transition from middle school to high school that you don't see in elementary school. You don't see pretty much going into middle school. But high school is the first moment where students are either completely autonomous in making their school choices or it's the parent and student negotiating that together. And this is where the experience of elementary school and middle school is informing the student in, in right. the same way that the parents' experience of their own schooling experience is informing them. And, and I think your research shows that those, those don't actually always line up exactly. Exactly. I think the other thing that's really important in this moment is that adolescents are growing up at a time in which they're really trying to understand the active role of race in the United States, Mm -hmm. the very active role Mm -hmm. of race in their own experiences, right? I collect the data uh, in 2018, 
And so let's think about that moment, right? Like that's a moment where where students are grappling with what Black Lives Matter movement, they're grappling with police brutality and police violence. They're also grappling with what does it mean to live in a country in which your racial group is being berated by the president via mm-hmm. negative stereotypes around Latinx people and negative stereotypes around immigration, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important to think about that we're also capturing young people at a moment where they're grappling with what what does it mean to be a white boy in the world? What does it mean to be a, a Black girl in the world? What does it mean to be a Latino boy in the world? And what does it mean in terms of the experiences that I want to have or don't want to have in a school mm-hmm. space? Mm. Not only did you find that race was playing a role in these decisions, which we we knew definitely was happening for white parents, but actually is, seems to be happening across the board. But it's also not happening in the same way. It's not like everyone has decided that the white schools are the best schools. We see that the the preferences that parents have are not homogenous. Yeah. So we can focus first just on the parents. Again, this is why we have to decenter whiteness in research, because I think our narrative comes from the narrative of what, in my study, white white parents' preferences are. So right. in my study, white parents prefer the majority white school first, then the mixed school, and then a, a huge jump in lower preferences for the Latinx and then the Black school. For Latinx parents, they are very similar preferences for the Latinx, the white, and the mixed school. But they really prefer to avoid the black school. Mm. Um, Asian parents, we're seeing that they, similar preferences for the white and mixed school, but they really want to avoid the Latinx and black schools. Black parents aren't expressing these racial preferences, right? So there's no effect of race on their school preferences. We see across the board that white, Asian, and Latinx parents really want to avoid the majority Black school. But we see for white parents, they have this very stark racial hierarchy in the kinds of schools that they want to attend. Dr. Haley, I need you to help me process that, though. <laughs> like, I know. Help me understand. Is there is there something that I can understand? Yeah. Um, I think, again... <laughs> go- <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it's tough, right? I think I'm going back to the, like, racism shapes how people make school choices, right? Yeah. So we know in the United States there's a racial hierarchy, let's say within stereotypes, right? Right. There's a racial hierarchy and stereotypes around students that essentially say that white students are smart, they're, they're really ambitious, they're peaceful, Asian students are, are are great students. They're engaged. They're the model minority within schools. You have uh, within this like academic hierarchy of, and stereotypes, right? You have Latinx students who are sometimes considered really hard workers, sometimes considered really violent. Uh, then you have really strong anti-Black stereotypes uh, around mm-hmm. Black students, right? P- in particular, around them being violent and disorderly and a- around their schools being places where you cannot advanced within social mobility, right? Mm -hmm. It's like those stereotypes exist in society and those stereotypes also exist around the idea of schools. Your work also shows they they clearly exist maybe most strongly in white parents, but they also exist in other parents as well. They also exist in Latinx parents. They also exist in Asian parents. Right. And I think what what my work is really showing, again, just focusing on parents, is this strong role of anti-Black racism in shaping family school choices. Right. And I think that by just focusing on white parents, you don't get that these other racial groups are also avoiding Black school spaces. And some of my other work, I show that this avoidance of the Black school is really driven in part by race-based perceptions of safety at those schools, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. I give families safety information about these schools. I say, this Black school has the same safety rating as these other schools. But what I find, again, using this experimental work is that the Latinx, white, and Asian families still think that the Black school is less safe. And that in particular, if those families have expressed biases towards Black people, if they think their stereotypes around Black people being more violent, and if they don't go to middle schools with other Black families, they're more likely to perceive the Black Mm -hmm. school as less safe than these other schools. And that that then drives their school choices. Dr. Ailey, it's just always, 
I think even more difficult to hear about anti-blackness from other communities of color. Like that is always extra difficult to process. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think I was just saddened by that, you know, while I was reading because it would be wonderful for black people just to have their dignity and humanity affirmed, period, the end of that, right? But we are constantly up against these anti-black stereotypes. Um, and it just, it's unfortunate. It's, I, I, I don't really have the right words. I don't know what white and or privileged parents or Latinx and Asian parents um, need to hear from black people to get them to change their minds. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Whew. That's tough. Yeah. Um, we, we sort of covered what parents want. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can tell us uh, what your research shows about what students want and how that's maybe similar or different from what their parents want. The students give me hope. So y'all parents need to get it together. Because <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the students yeah. give me hope. <laughs> so I think it might be easiest to take it each racial group at a time. Sure. The differences between parents and students are slightly different for each racial group. Right. Right. So let's start with Asian, the Asian families, the Asian parents and students, racial preferences for schools look very similar. So they both are expressing desires to attend the majority white and mixed schools more than the majority black and Latinx schools. Very similar patterns. For white respondents and Latinx respondents, what I find is that parents' preferences for schools are more anti-Black than their students. So I'm seeing that white parents want to avoid the Black school at two times the rate than their students. Also, I find, again, that Latinx parents want to avoid the Black school at much higher thresholds than the Latinx students. The way that I categorize white students and Latinx students' racial preferences is to say that they have an in-group racial preference. They prefer the school with their racial group the highest, but they don't really express any other preferences for the other schools. How I interpret it is that they want to go to, to school with kids that are like them. Part of that might be built into racial stereotypes around other groups. Part of that may be built into what their friendship groups already look like. And so they're thinking, I want to go to school with my friends or with mm-hmm. people who are like my friends that I currently have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be built into those two things. So that, j- just so I'm clear, that the, the hierarchy that we see among white parents of sort of white schools are the best, then mixed schools, and then significantly lower Latinx schools, and at the bottom are black schools, that, that for white students, you really have white schools are the best and then everything else is kind of equal, that the kind of specific anti-blackness isn't showing up in the same way. Exactly. And the same thing for Latinx students where it's, I want to go to the Latinx school, all the other schools. Okay, sure. Like I, I would equally want to go to these other schools, but you don't see the same, the same form of anti-blackness in Latinx students and white students, racial preferences for schools. Mm. Let's talk about black kids. So Black families, this is why it's important to think about this in an intersectional way. We find a very different pattern. What I find specifically for Black parents is that they're not expressing any racial preferences. But for the Black students, they prefer to attend the Black school and then they really want to avoid the majority white school. Mm -hmm. So what I find is that they rate the majority white school the lowest and rates the Latinx mixed and Black schools much higher. I read your research both as a former student in these spaces and as a parent, and specifically as a parent of a child who's trying to negotiate high school, right? So we are right Mm. smack dab in the middle of the group that you studied. My son wants to go to the neighborhood school and... The other option is actually the school where my husband teaches. And so mostly for my son, it's like, I don't want to go to school with my dad. (laughs) You know, I want (laughs) to have like my own space and friends. (laughs) Right. And, you know, I want to honor, I want to honor his choice. And also I was thinking like, as a parent, how do I set him up for the best case scenario? Because again, like you, just being familiar with the research on what the system can be like for black boys you know, I'm nervous, right? I only got two shots at parenting to get this right. Like, how do I set them up for success? And I think I'm at the point where I feel like I can supplement anything academically that they have going on that they might miss, you know, 
And I, I feel like an affirming space for their racial identity is still super important. So if I had to choose, right, I want them to be in a space where they do feel affirmed. And yeah, I just was really struck by some of those decisions that specifically Black parents have to make and where can I have like the least exposure to racism? That signed me mm-hmm. up for that one. So that's kind of exactly where we are in grappling with, you know, how to make this choice for our kids. But <laughs> something I would love to hear you talk more about is this position choice, right, that you allude to in your research. Yeah, that, that, was, that was fascinating. Can you explain to us what position choice is? So position choice comes from another educational researcher. Her name is uh, Camille Cooper. And so the idea of position choice is taking a few things into account. One, it's thinking about intersectional positionality, which I'll, I'll break down what that means. So intersectional, we mean that based upon our gender, our race, our age, our I don't know, we can think our location, that there are particular vulnerabilities and advantages associated with all of those things. By intersectionality, I mean that those things intersect, right? So you have different vulnerabilities and advantages if you are a white, high-income woman as compared to a Black, high-income woman, right? And there's an intersection with the difference between being a Black high-income woman and a Black high-income man or a Black low-income woman and a Black low-income man, right? So we can think about how the, the intersections of our social statuses really impact our advantages and vulnerabilities. What Camille Cooper does is say that we bring all of those advantages and vulnerabilities to our school choices, Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's where she dives in on position choice. So this is like taking the idea of intersectionality, this idea that all of our various identities impact the way that we interact in the world Mm -hmm. and then applying it to school choice, looking at the position that our identities put us in and how that impacts our choice. Is that right? Exactly. And I think what she does, which is really important, is that. I think sometimes when we think about school choices, we think about people coming to them tabula rasa, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I just show up and I'm just making this choice and I'm just doing whatever I want. What she really reminds us is that your choices are positioned both within your local racial educational structure. So what segregation looks like in your particular community? What are the racialized ways in which academic resources may differ across your community? Mm -hmm. That's part of your position, right? So thinking about your local geography. Mm -hmm. The other position that you have is thinking about your own experiences in that system, and you bring that into Mm -hmm. your school choices, right? Right. So as, as a parent, you're bringing your educational experiences to that choice. Mm -hmm. You're also bringing your students' educational experiences so far Mm -hmm. in the system into that choice. Absolutely. Right? Is this position choice freedom or is it bondage? You know, like at some point in this housing search, I was frustrated because it felt like, you know what? The man, the system is not going to let me move out of this box that they think I belong in, right? So... I don't even entertain certain neighborhoods for that very reason, right? And I had not heard of the term that position choice, but I'm I'm feeling it very deeply. Oh, that that is a question. Is it freedom or is it bondage? Wow. I'm going to sit with that for a while. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so I think in particular, uh, you said you have a Black son. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking about his position choice, you're thinking about it from the context of his both vulnerabilities and advantages as a Black boy in particular school spaces, right? And so so the question of, is that freedom or is it bondage? It's bondage, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think what's, what's important, and I think, again, this is why I really emphasize that you're making choices within a racialized system. You're making choices within a system that has both a long history of racism, that has a long history Mm -hmm. of who it responds to or doesn't respond to. And that is bondage. And then you have choice within that, right? So um, Lynn Mm. Posey Maddox, specifically when she talks about Black parents making school choices, she has a a piece out that's that's entitled, There Is No Right Choice, Mm -hmm. right? 
So you can think about, okay, I can choose for, in your case, like my Black boy, to live in a neighborhood that may have access to a particular school that has a lot of resources. But what does that mean in terms of his own risks uh, to police violence in that? What does that mean Mm -hmm. in terms of his own risk of being seen as a criminal within that Mm -hmm. school and and potential impacts that that can have on his educational trajectory? Mm -hmm. Or you can make the choice where you say, okay, let me put him in a space where he may not experience as much within school racism, right? Or racial biases. But... It's not that you're escaping racism. Right. Because racism still exists. Racism structures what's available in that school or not. So it's not the escape of racism, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's the the part of the bondage, right? That racism Mm -hmm. is is shaping what's accessible in these school spaces, but also it's shaping your experience once you get into the school. And I'm I'm looking specifically at... This was... It was a tough read because it just, you know, it's so pertinent to like where I am right now but just you Mm -hmm. write black parents did not express racialized school preferences while black students desired to avoid the white school but just thinking that there is no right choice like I am just doing the best within what I know to be true or possible and it does stink to have to think of it that way like what at, at this point and this is true it's like what school can he go to where it's the least amount of harm caused that is the Mm -hmm. choice also, Mary Patillo, in her work on school choice, grapples with that same question, mm-hmm. right? On Black mm-hmm. parents in Chicago feeling like, do I really have a choice, right? right. Like, she even questions this idea of choice, right? right? Like, if you're in a system where you, you don't feel like people are responding to you or you don't have the true information when you're making these choices or you're choosing between bad and worse. Right. It, is that really a choice? Is that really choice? Right. right. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's heavy. It's something that I I feel personally as a Black parent, and I'm still grappling with whether or not I think that there is a choice or if I don't really have the ability to express those racial preferences in a way that maybe some other parents do. Yeah. In your research, you find that Black parents don't really express racial preferences. Do you think that has something to do with it? In particular, I think about the Black parents not expressing any racial preferences. It's not that they didn't have any particular desires for schools, right? So I'm seeing like things such as graduation rates and safety ratings are really influencing their preferences, but that the racial demographics of schools don't. The -hmm. way that I think about that is that I really kind of am drawing on the qualitative literature in which Black parents in particular are really grappling with how to best educate their child Mm -hmm. and to think about their potential vulnerability to racism within schools. And that once they think about the balance of those things, they really have what uh, Lynn Posey-Maddox says is that there is no right choice, right? Mm -hmm. So I might be choosing a majority white school where I think that my child might receive more resources, but at that same time, they may be more uh, criminalized within that school. The research shows that they may be more likely to be suspended or that their behaviors be seen as violent or disrespectful as compared to other students, They may look at majority Black school and say, that might be a space where my student really is empowered in their Blackness, right? Mm -hmm. But given our racist structure of schools, they may not have as many resources as this majority white school. And so I think when I think about the balance of all those things, they're kind of like, there's there's pros and cons on both Mm -hmm. sides. And so there just is no right racial choice for schools, right? That no matter what racial demographics of schools they're choosing, there's a potential disadvantage to mm-hmm. each of those spaces. Right. Yeah. Black parent lack of racial preference is not like black parents are post-racial. The black parents think that racism no. is over and it doesn't matter, <laughs> but just that like, no. I'm going to have to give up not something no matter where I go. That's yeah. exactly right. That's hard. The way I think about student black students is particular that they're looking at their, their, their racial, what I call like vulnerability to racism in schools. Like they know they're in this context in which they're choosing schools 
in the era of Black Lives Matter, in the era in which they're seeing children that are their same age being uh, uh, brutalized by police or, or murdered by police. They're looking at this in the context of hearing about Black students' experiences in some of these majority mm-hmm. white schools. And, and they're saying, like, if I have a, a option to avoid that, then mm-hmm. I will. Right. right. And even there's really recent work. So this is Dominique Baker. What she finds is that in states and in communities where there's been more hate crimes, then Black students are more likely to choose to attend HBCUs or historically Black colleges, hmm. right? Wow. So it gives this foray into, like, theoretically, I'm saying, like, this is probably because of their perceptions of racism and racist experiences in these white spaces. But what she's showing is, like, when you actually look at their choices in relationship to hate crimes, like, that's hmm. exactly what you're seeing, at least in that transition from high school to college. And I think that's probably what's happening in that transition from middle to high school as well. Hmm. As you were talking, I was thinking just about several experiences where my own two children have come home and they they would say like, oh, this teacher's racist. Like, so it's not even witnessing it in social media or outside. Like the students, <laughs> the children know and they feel it. And it's something that is talked about amongst their peers, right? They know which teachers and um, they want no parts of it. Exactly, exactly. Do you, do you have a, a sort of theory about why that's showing up more for Black students than Black parents in this moment? Yeah, I think it goes to, again, this idea of position choice, right? That Black students are doing this from the position of, I've had schooling experiences, exactly what you're saying, Val. And in those schooling experiences, I have the the racist teacher, I've experienced these racist actions, And so now I have the potential autonomy to make a different kind of choice. So I think that's the trajectory or the positionality that students are coming to this choice. I think parents are coming to this choice often from a very different space. They're thinking about it in the context of their own schooling experiences, but they're also often coming to this from the context of these other experiences as well, such as choosing a a, a neighborhood, right? Or um, thinking about their work experiences. It is difficult because um, to your question, Andrew, it's not that we don't think about it. We think about it a lot. But when my daughter came home and she was telling me an experience that she had in, in fifth grade, And I looked at her, I was like, oh, you had your first microaggression. So my option as a Black parent was to say, to teach you how to deal with this because it's not going anywhere. And that just, that's the reality. So it's not that I don't want to remove them from these racist situations. Instead, I have to teach them how to deal with them because, as you mentioned, my experience you know, in school, in work, in life has shown me I have to figure out how to deal with it. And so it was teaching her the language of that. And that was the best I could do to protect her. I think that's exactly right, right? I think by the time parents get to this school choice for especially this middle school to high school, they've built a toolkit for being able to navigate racism. Mm -hmm. Whereas students at that point may not necessarily have built that toolkit yet or understand what that toolkit looks like as they navigate the rest of the world. The kids feel like if I avoid the white school, I will avoid the racism. And parents have been disabused of that idea that you're going to have yeah. to deal with it sooner or later. Yep. Right. Ooh, oh, that's uplifting. So we typically ask people to help us solve racism each episode. What you got? What you got? We haven't we haven't done it yet. We're close. We're close. Each episode, we are a little bit closer. A little bit closer <laughs> to solving racism. <laughs> Um, I think what what my work really shows is that the fix is multilayered and complicated. Yeah. Like even what what I'm finding about these race-based anti-Black perceptions of of school safety, again, that it's built in individual racial biases, is built within cultural stereotypes, and it's also built within the role of previously segregated school experiences than influencing your perceptions of potential schools, right? So it's like, you have to, for me, you have to hit it at all three levels in order to really have an impact on the potential for integrated schools and racial equity. Right. I mean, I think often we want, and often school districts and teachers, everybody wants like, what's the one thing that's going to solve racism? Where's the silver bullet? Right. Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. Where's the thing? It's school choice, right? Like that was the solution. 
solution, right? right. School mm-hmm. choice, like breakup, neighborhood segregation from schools, and now we've solved racism. It's like, right. no. no, that's not, no, that nope. doesn't work. No, actually, people are just express their own forms of racism within school choice, right? <laughs> like, th- that's actually what happens. And so I don't want to offer that there is one simple solution. I, as a sociologist, see it as multi-layered. There has to be shifts in policy and shifts in individual biases and shifts in our media narratives in order for these things to happen, right? So uh, just because you allow families to go to school anywhere in the city doesn't mean that people actually make those choices because they're doing so often from their own racial biases, right? Right. So if you don't change both of those things at the same time, you're not going to solve racism. Honestly, I think the only solve to racism is completely upend the advantages that are given and reified to whiteness in America, actually around the world. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you taking our question seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think you, you're probably you right. Are doing I think it. That's, yeah, you are that's, doing and it. That is, so thank you. We've said this a number of times, but like, that is a fairly, like, I think that's probably true. And that's pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's pretty simple. <laughs> pretty clear that's cut. It. We know what right, yeah, right. we know what needs to happen. Up in the advantages given to white people. Uh, now, now, how does that happen when white people hold the power? I don't know. I right. don't know. I don't know if it's realistic. But I mean, that's. I think that's that's the to solve racism. You have to s- solve racism. That's a circular <laughs> answer, but that's the reality. <laughs> that is right. the reality. Right. Well, I mean, I think that does it does. And, and I, you probably know where I'm going to go here, Val. But but like the fact that the kids are not yet as wrecked by racism as the parents are speaks to the power of the kind of generational work of of this of solving racism that that we are not going to solve it in our generation, but we can set our kids up to be a little better, a little closer to solving it, and that then their kids are a little closer, and their kids are a little closer. Do you mind if I respond to that? <laughs> not Please at all. go. Do it. Do it. Do it. because uh, I'm like I'm optimistic. But I'm also I I I I, I am always cautiously optimistic, specifically yeah. with that with that finding, right? Because I, I I think what's important with the differences between parents and students is that we're capturing generational differences, right? In which mm-hmm. we have seen that explicit racial biases and explicit use of stereotypes and all those things have diminished across generations. Mm-hmm. But we're also capturing age differences, and so I'm not sure. And this is the caveat I want to give to my research. I'm not sure whether the differences between parents and students are about generational shifts, right? So that we'll continue to see things get better over time. Or mm-hmm. are we capturing age differences, meaning mm-hmm. that as students age into thinking about potential anxieties around their own children's social mobility, mm-hmm. that they then go back to enacting the forms of uh, racial biases and racial preferences that their mm. parents had. Right. Mm. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, the first time I looked at those data, that was my interpretation too. And then right. I had to sit back right. and say, wait, wait a, a minute. minute. Wait a minute. What, what, well, what would it mean to try to push that towards the more hopeful version? Like what, what does it take to push those current students to not grow into the racial stereotypes of their parents? What does that look like? I think that goes to thinking about how to use school choice as a platform for integration within school systems, right? And I think my answer to that question is that it has to be controlled choice. Mm. And so what that means is you as a parent and as a student can express your racial preferences for schools, but that the school system also has to control what that match between people's preferences and the actual outcome of demographics of schools looks like. Mm-hmm. In, in a controlled choice system, parents can both exp- and students can both express their preferences, but school systems can control what the actual demographics of schools looks like in the right. end and right. potentially give students more exposure to different racial groups. Because what my other research is showing is that the fewer Black students in their middle school, the more likely they are to express these race-based biases about uh, Mm. safety in schools, right? Mm. So that's like one lever. Again, caveat, 
Research shows that that lever, it's not just about exposure to different racial groups within schools, but it's also about that being done in a place in which particular racial groups don't hold more advantages, right? So so just because a white student has exposure to more Black students in their school, if it's done within a context of within-school segregation, meaning that all the white kids are in the advantage in AP classes and all the black kids are in normal classes, that just that just reifies the idea that yep. right. white people are smarter than black people. So like yep. that doesn't break th- that that narrative, right? If you're going to intentionally desegregate schools, it has to be done within a form that's also grappling with the racism that exists in schools and upending those racialized structures within schools in things like tracking, in things like school suspension. Like, I think it, again, how do you solve racism? By upending the power given to white people (laughs) within racialized spaces. Like, it it has to be done within that context. Yeah, because I think one one of the things your your work really highlights is something we think about a lot at integrated schools is just like the policies are really important and like whiteness finds a way Always. regardless of the policy that 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 mm-hmm. you know as Val mentioned last episode like white supremacy is crafty and so <laughs> if you just change policies and you don't ever change hearts and minds that that we white folks will find ways around the best construed policies but that but that if contact in the context of a well-designed racially affirming space does actually lead to changes in hearts and minds and so how do we kind of do both things at the same time Exactly. Exactly. It's it can't be an either or. You can't have culturally responsive curricula in a system in which only black students are getting that curricula. That's not right. helpful for upending <laughs> racism. Right. 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 Or you can't right. have culturally responsive curricula or exposure to black authors in a context in which white students are just talking to each other. It's not upending right. racism. Right. Woo. Oh I know. I talk to you all day. It's this so good. Fantastic. It's so good. I'm really grateful. Grateful to you for doing this work. Can't be easy yeah. work to do, um, yeah. but but it's important, and we're all better for you having done it. And um, certainly, I feel very grateful for you taking the time to come on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So, Val, what did you think? Uh, always in my feelings about these things. Um, yeah. I, I think I want to start with just her own schooling experience and how her own story, both that of her personal journey and the journey of her family members that she talks about in terms of them doing this integration work, how that influenced so much of her research and so much of her commitment to understanding how this operates and how it impacts students. I think I also really want to acknowledge her centering the experience of students and developing this autonomy to say like, hey, this is the kind of schooling experience I want too. I don't know that just generally, even in schools, we have enough of those conversations with young people. So I really, I I just want to highlight that to start. Yeah, it's another like really important piece of her work that feels really additive to the conversation because certainly a lot of the conversations about school choice happen at the elementary school level where kids really don't have the ability to have much of a say, but we miss things if we skip over what students actually want. And I think that idea of, you know, position choice and what are high school kids bringing to the conversation from their own experiences that might be different than what their parents are expecting them to to have when they show up in these spaces and and how what might we lean on those feelings and those perspectives from the students themselves to to try to push the conversation forward. Right. And I think that's really important for the parenting aspect of this, because if my children, both Black children, came to me and said, I don't want to be at the school because I don't feel safe, you know, emotionally or psychologically, or I don't feel like my identity is affirmed, like I have to take that into consideration when thinking about where they go to school. And I feel like Sometimes, I'm just going to guess, you help me. You help me with the white parents. I feel like sometimes <laughs> white parents think, like, this will put them in the in the best situation, you know, in the future financially or the most connected, even though it might be damaging to them because it is a place that is steeped in whiteness and white supremacy. And right. just, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, even just the way we talk about good schools and bad schools is about the ways that we think it may or may not set our kids up to 
make money in the future. (laughs) It's like all steeped in capitalism and the metrics of success are like, is it preparing you to get the best job possible? And even if you take that framing as as valuable, which I struggle with for sure, you know, I think we still don't actually do a good job because we're not actually setting our kids up for success if we're putting them in spaces where they're only surrounded by other white kids. Okay, I have a question. I have a question. I love you being the white person I can ask questions to. Um, Do you think it feels the same for white folks in, like, do they feel racially affirmed in, like, these all-white spaces? Is that, like, the same type of feeling that I'm describing for Mm. my son and Mm. his experiences? Mm. That... Look at me asking you doctor questions. Look at that. You see that? <laughs> For real. For real. I um I know I will I will try to speak for all white parents because that's my that's my role here. Awesome. But awesome. um in my in my own experience, it doesn't feel like racial affirmation. It feels like the lack of having to confront race as a mm. thing at all. Right. It's like Got the absence it. of race as a as anything that even needs to be talked about or addressed. Yeah. And there's safety in not having to address that. Yeah. But I don't think it's identity affirming yeah. at all, really. You know, like the the homogeneity of an all white space, I think actually makes and I don't know that there's research to back this up, but certainly like in my experience, I feel like it's much harder to affirm your own identity as a white kid in an all white space because there is only one way to be. And in more diverse mm. spaces, it's easier to say like, okay, there's like eight different ways that that you can be a kid, that you can be mm-hmm. an eighth grader, that you can be a sophomore in high school. And mm-hmm. so it's easier to kind of plug yourself into to that mm. in a way that doesn't feel as toxic. No, that, that description feels super affirming to me, right? That because we have already embraced like this difference in diversity around us, that I can show up however I am as a white kid too and not only have to be one way. Yeah. I don't know. You keep making cases for us to integrate. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. So I'm, trying. I'm here for that. Um, here well, for that. let me ask you something about your son's choice. Yeah. B- because this is something I struggle with is, is on the one hand, obviously the older kids get, the more important it is that they feel some sense of ownership over their own right. fate. And it is potentially more comfortable for a middle school kid to go to a school. I mean, we see this in Dr. Haley's research, right? Like kids Mm -hmm. prefer schools that are full of kids who are like them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. where do you acknowledge the autonomy of your kids? And where do you draw a line and say, no, like actually this is is more important? Yeah. Our particular family, we just have a unique perspective because of our professions, right? And so we can talk pretty honestly about school systems and how they work and how they function, I can say, because we have not detracted, here's why you are taking all honors classes. Here's the opportunities that it provides you. And so those are things that we talk about very honestly, because we know how the system works specifically for black and brown kids. You know, Andrew, I got, I got two shots at this. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I really got into my feelings about whether or not I have a choice where there's freedom or bondage. Like I really got yeah. into my feelings about that a lot, both in reading her research and talking to her because the stakes feel really high. The yeah. stakes feel really high. Can you say more about the, like what right. what feels high about the stakes? Yeah, I don't think that my child or my children have a lot of opportunities to mess up. And it feels like a, a significant responsibility to try to put them in school systems where they can come out whole, right? Right. You know, Dr. Haley talks about her elite white private education as a high schooler. And that's not even what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the schools that will do the least amount of harm. Like, how can I put my kid in a school that does the least amount of harm? And I think that came up in her research as well. Like, Black parents are like, I'm stuck. (laughs) So I would like to have a preference. But guess what? You know, like, I am trying to make sure my kids have have the least amount of harm. And I think for some Black parents, that does come up with, like, how do I get them into the most elite schools? And for others, it's like, how do I make sure their identities are affirmed and that right. they can survive this, you know, without hating themselves or... Recognizing that there's no reason that it, those two things need to be in conflict, but so often they are. Right, right. I mean, I think that's, you know, part of the appeal of HBCUs is that you kind of... Yeah. You get, you get all of it. Yep. Then. I mean... My whole K twelve experience was HBCU. Woohoo! <laughs> I don't. I don't. Right. Is that good or bad? I don't know. Yeah. But I turned out all right. But you also didn't have 
72 AP classes offered at your high school or... Right. I didn't. But, you know, my own story in terms of my parents, et cetera, and the decisions they made offered a level of privilege too, right? They were educators. My grandfather was an early childhood professor. So from the very beginning, I was like in a safe space. Do all of our students of color have that same protection? Not necessarily, right? I feel like I spend a lot of time trying to convince other white parents that the stakes aren't nearly as high as they think they are. Mm. there's this like sense that I've got to get them into the right preschool. You know, we're thinking about getting pregnant. And so we got to get on a wait list because if they don't get into the right preschool, then they're not going to get into the right kindergarten mm-hmm. and then they're not going to get into the right middle school. And then they're not going to get, you know, and they kind of like the, the, the stakes feel super high. And I think a lot of times that is overblown. Mm. And I don't discount at all the, the, the realness of this, the stakes for you and for your kids. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm I'm grateful that we can have these conversations. Yeah. And no, and I'm I'm glad you said that because I think what is really important to continue to emphasize is that we all, all of us, value our children. And I mm-hmm. think that it's sometimes assumed that parents of color don't value their children as much, aren't grappling with like, how do I get to the right school or how do I make sure that they have the best opportunity? And that that's hurtful because yeah. Why is there an assumption that I don't care as much about my kid or that my kid isn't as valuable as your kid, right? And so I think one thing that's really important for us to connect on cross-racially is that we all care about our kids, period, point blank. And I'm imploring white people to think about why they are trying to restrict access to kids whose parents love them just as much, find them just as valuable, and absolutely deserve the world, right? Yeah. That's what I really want us to grapple with. I think one of the things I really appreciate about Dr. Haley's research is is the way that it kind of decenters whiteness. Because we know that white parents have this like racial hierarchy of quality mm-hmm. of school, right? The, mm-hmm. the the Bellingham Hunt research, like the blacker a school gets, the worse it is, the less mm-hmm. likely I want to send my kid there. We know that that's, that kind of exists. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like so much of the conversation around education assumes that that is like true, Mm-hmm. In actuality, not just in perception. And so then we have these ideas where, like, the white schools are the best kid schools. Well, if we just give more black kids access to the white schools, we will have improved lo- the lives of these, you know, poor black kids. And now we're going to open up these opportunities. And if the parents don't take it, it's because the parents don't care. But right. what Dr. Haley's research shows is that everybody wants the best for their kid. But what's the best for their kid is not the same for everybody across across racial identity. Exactly. And... Why? (laughs) Why is that, right? Why do Black parents say like, oh, this feels more toxic than helpful to my kid? And why do Latinx or Asian parents be like, if I'm aligned super close (laughs) to the Black kids, how does that hurt my kid, right? Right. Like these are, look, y'all listeners, I really want y'all to to pull a group together and start talking about what we're talking about here. (laughs) Because like this, this really, like, look, this is when I get stuck trying to fix racism. I'm stuck now. <laughs> yeah, I do like that idea of parents getting together across racial identities and, and having these conversations because it's easy to think that everybody views schools in the same way that you view schools. Right. And, you know, I think we try every episode to model how maybe that's not exactly the same for the two of us. But even yeah. beyond that, uh, and again, why Dr. Haley's research feels so powerful is that it is really looking beyond just this kind of black-white binary. And one other thing I I wanted to get your take on, Val, we we sort of got to this near the end of the episode. We see in Dr. Hayes' research that the students seem to be less racist than the parents. (laughs) And you and I both took hope from that. Like, the kids (laughs) are all right, kind of. And she insisted on putting that caveat in there, like, is this that the kids are another generation older and so have had another generation of conversations and interactions with people and so are further along? Or is it just that as you go from being a kid to being an adult, the same way that you might become more fiscally conservative or you might become whatever, mm-hmm. the older you get, that that you become you know more sort of set in your racist ways? Yeah. So that's why I think as parents, we have to continue these conversations. And I think Oftentimes that probably feels the most comfortable. I'm really still sitting with the idea that, you know, in in the all white spaces, we don't have to acknowledge it. And I think that's something that I would love to push white folks on who are listening. That also includes in your home, right? Right. Where in my home, we're all looking at our black faces like (laughs) it's it's not something that we won't acknowledge ever. Right. And so I think that that is 
something that as parents we can do to not leave to chance, right? To actually yeah. talk about these things. Yeah. My heart wants the kids to be better off. And I'm sure they are in in many ways. And I also think about otherwise progressive white folks, friends of mine who if I had asked in high school would have been like, oh, for sure, integration is where it's at. And now I look at where they send their kids to school and it's like, mm, mm, What um, happened, folks? Right. What happened? You have kids and your perspective on the world shifts. Like It does. But how do we kind of hold on to, to those ideals and how do we hold on to that kind of optimism that that we see when we look at the research on the students right. from Dr. Haley and, and how do we foster that into, into adulthood? Right. Because as we've seen in the recent Supreme Court justice mm. confirmation hearings, even being like a highly qualified candidate mm. is not enough. Right. right. And so what type of conversations could have been had in the homes and schools of of the senators who blatantly said this person is highly qualified but just doesn't fit, right? Right. I mean, you mentioned last time, I think, a little bit. The importance of finding the victories and of celebrating me, and I do think that's right. justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, is a very exciting that's development. right. And I just think about how hard it was for her to get there, the challenges mm-hmm. that she overcame to get there, and mm-hmm. how— you know, impressive it is. And um, yeah, that's, I think that's reason to celebrate. That's reason to be hopeful. That is a reason to celebrate. Um, much like Dr. Val, you know, I mean, I'm not cut out for that, but I know, I know a number of people who have gotten there and I, I can only imagine the, mm. even just, you know, we were talking about your high school and, and the lack mm-hmm. of AP class and the other things you were set up for success in many ways and also set up to not yeah. achieve what you did and yet you did it anyway so oh thank that's you worth, you know worth Dr. another round of congratulations oh thank you i appreciate that you know that justice brown jackson is also from miami i'm just saying oh look out look out oh it's I gonna be nice out. like i need to start <laughs> watching all of like the oral arguments we let a little miami slip look out. <laughs> i can't wait <laughs> Well, um, this is always a treat, Val. I hope listeners, that you enjoyed it. If you did, we'd really appreciate your support. Patreon.com slash Integrated Schools. Help us keep making the podcast. That's really important. And it's also really important that you don't just listen to this and keep this in your heart. Share with others. Talk about it. There are discussion guides that go with each episode, and we want you to use them. For sure. Val, it's always a pleasure to be in this with you. I try to know better and do better. Until next time, friend. big boy he says i'm perfection Hmm, see i can't even do it because he's that good he says i'm perfection personified on the first take i am not big boy i'm perfection perfection. (laughs) on the first take (laughs) that's right big boy we appreciate you thanks (laughs)